to God, let us sing our praises and rejoice in our salvation. For the Lord our God is a great God above all other gods, a king above all other kings. Let us worship the Lord our God. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In God's hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are God's also.
O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Even as the God of all creation, King over heaven and earth, you, O Lord, hear the cries of those without food and water, those without community, without safety, without justice. You see how the world makes certain people among us vulnerable, and you dare to lead by making yourself vulnerable as well. Holy God, by your word and spirit, come and transform your church to be a living sign of your love and compassion for the world, where those who have been made poor are filled with good things, where the dividing walls between us are broken down and where the dead are raised to new life. Come, make us into your people. Through Jesus Christ, our wounded healer, we pray. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the Lord's name and because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means our word of welcome is one that never has any qualifying adjectives attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, to sign the friendship tag. You'll find that on your pew. You may send it down and back again. And for those worshiping with us electronically, there is a virtual friendship tag, which we hope you'll sign after you log off from this service at the conclusion of worship. We'd be delighted if you'd let us know who you are as well. I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall at the conclusion of worship. Old Buttonwood is just out this door to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, we will find the opportunity to engage with one another in our common life. I'd like to highlight a few things from the announcements portion of your bulletin, as well as the insert, for your particular attention in the time to come. The first is to highlight that our 20s and 30s group are having their monthly brunch today, so if you would like to join our TNTs for brunch, just find Laura Coley after worship. Uh, she'll be here and then probably in Old Buttonwood as well and enjoy that time together, time of fellowship for our TNTs. We also have a, a new members class coming up on December the 10th, and if, whether you have worshiped with us a very short time or for years and years, if you feel that God is calling you to be a part of this community, we would love to welcome you in a more formal way into membership in the church. You may contact either me or Laura to ask to be added to that membership class. I'd like to highlight that you have an insert in your bulletin. I'm sure you've all noticed it. But on this are a variety of ways to plug in more deeply to the life of faith over this Advent season. There are a number of social opportunities where we can engage with one another one-on-one, -on -one, but there are also opportunities to give back in terms of volunteering opportunities and our annual giving tree, which will be in Old Buttonwood Hall so that we may give to those around us who are in need of extra Christmas cheer this holiday season. Uh, I will leave that to you to read at your leisure. With these things noted, let us continue our worship now with the confession of sin.
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Those words from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing reverberate in our ears every time we come to confession together. This holy space is not meant to induce guilt or shame, but as a way of acknowledging the inevitable, entro- in, the inevitable entropy in our lives. Each of us has wandered away from the wildly compassionate people we were made to be. And in confession, we are called to gather the scattered parts of our lives back together for one united purpose. To love God, to love one another, and to love ourselves. So friends, come. Let us gather ourselves together once more through our prayer of confession, first in unison and then in silence. Let us pray. Holy God, there are moments where it seems that the threads of human kindness that bind us together grow frayed when we see you and walk right on by. You give each of us to the other as your beloved, that we might see your image reflected to us in each kindness. Yet too often we do not see one another the way you see us. Too often we compete where no competition is required. Too often we keep what is meant to be shared. Too often we withhold the kind word, the generous gesture, and your vision for our life together becomes blurred, obscured by meanness and selfishness. Forgive us, we pray. Restore within us the love that you have entrusted to bind us together that we might be as you intended us to be. God searches out the lost and finds us. God gathers us at God's table and feeds us. Even as our lives threaten to pull apart, God hems us in and calls us God's own. Friends, find peace and acceptance in God's wide embrace this day. Trust that there is more than enough of divine grace to ground us and bring us together once more. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson for this morning comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. Listen for God's word for you. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the watercourses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lay down, says the Lord God. I will seek out the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you pushed with flank and shoulder, and butted at all the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be ravaged, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. May God add a blessing to this reading. Our second scripture lesson comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Listen again for God's word for you. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what it is to hope to which he has been called to you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this work, this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God, too, add a blessing to this reading.
we have for three weeks been in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account for our Gospel lesson. And today we conclude that chapter, beginning at verse 31 and reading to the end of the chapter to verse 46. Continue now to listen for the word of God as it comes to us this day from Matthew's Gospel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Very truly, I tell you, just as you did this to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you have watched any season of The Crown on Netflix, it is easy to assume that the decisions of a constitutional monarch would be of no greater consequence than which social engagements to prioritize or which openings to attend. Nonetheless, we quickly see the queen forced to make judgments with great consequences for those about whom the decision is being made. A few moments stand out such as her resistance to Princess Margaret's desire to marry group leader Peter Townsend, a suitor deemed unsuitable by the Queen and those around her. Likewise, the machinations undertaken to separate the Prince of Wales and Camilla Shand are portrayed as similarly heavy-handed, and we all know how that worked out. It often seems that there are two types of people who enter the royal orbit. Those who are judged worthy to be in and those who are kept out. Those who are truly welcome among the family and those who must be treated politely but nevertheless kept at arm's length. It's not quite the separation of the sheep and the goats, but for those left on the outside, for those whose lives were changed, it may as well have been. It would be impossible to read the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel narrative, in my estimation, without becoming at least a little anxious based on its contents. Unless we are sociopaths, there can be no joy in observing such a sorting. I cannot imagine any one of us would like to be sorted like sheep and goats. As I noted last week, if we push parables too far in the wrong direction, the analogies they hold will invariably break down. Hence, as we interpret the parables, we tend to try to focus on what we think is the main thing. For those of us bent on interpreting the gospel through the lens of the love of Jesus Christ, a perspective we come to by considering the whole Bible and not merely parts of it, that means that we are always looking for what it is in the parable that constitutes good news. Because if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. But <coughs> it would be impossible to read the 25th chapter of Matthew and not become at least a little bit leery of bridesmaids locked out of the house, of servants languishing in the outer darkness, and now the poor old goats apparently bound for the proverbial barbecue. We must find 
some good news, but we must also recognize and reconcile where the subplot of these parables leave us with at least a little bit of a cold chill blowing through our goodwill, because these are actions that have consequences for those seemingly left out. Now, with any literary criticism, we pay attention to where things fall in the story. A detail included in the first few pages of a novel, for instance, might merely be character development or foreshadowing, but it could also prove vital to the plot later on. But paying attention to how the story unfolds right before the climax of the story generally will help us to perceive correctly the way that a narrative is developing. The parables that we have been reading these last few weeks before we come to today, to Christ the King Sunday, and before the lectionary abandons Matthew's gospel for the cozier Advent and Christmas narratives, actually unfold in Matthew's gospel immediately prior to Christ's passion. That story of his entry into Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his conviction, and his execution. Matthew has been developing the story in such a way that we are being prepared for what is to come next. A time when the consequences of Jesus' gospel message and kingdom preaching will lead to the culmination of his ministry. And as Karl Barth puts it, the crisis of human history the cross, and the resurrection. And when the consequences are so very clear, we cannot look at the story and say that one thing is the same as another. One course of action will not yield the same results as another. One decision will not lead us to the same outcome as another. Being prepared is not the same as being unprepared. Perceiving harshness is not the same as seeing generosity. Attending to the other is not the same as rushing by. Is it any wonder that beneath the stories of preparation, perception, and generous living, there is an undercurrent that when these things are not present, everything looks different. A world with good news looks different from a world without. But isn't that true generally? A thing cannot be what it is, and also its opposite. As the Queen says to Tony Blair, being in government is not the same as being out of government. Living into the grace of God is not the same as living for oneself. And gentleness is not the same as harshness. And death is not the same as resurrection. I realize that binaries can sometimes force us to conclusions that are incomplete and unhelpful at best and destructive at worst. 
but good and evil are not the same. If we believe otherwise, the rest of the Bible has a lesson for us. Now, in a global sense, the truth that good and evil are not the same is good news. But if we want to rest a bit more easily, we would do well to strive with this parable a bit longer and see if we can find some reconciliation between the sheep and the goats. Now, a generation ago, scholars were very clear as to how this parable should be interpreted. They had a consistent understanding of what was going on with the separation of the sheep and the goats. A generation ago, scholars would tell us that in Matthew's world, where his Jewish audience had just exited the synagogue, either willingly or unwillingly, whether or not the church could even exist was a matter of utmost importance to them. In that understanding of this parable, the least represents the persecuted church. Those who offered aid and comfort to the nascent church were seen as having done a very good thing. To offer food and drink, clothing and shelter, visits, all of these things were acts of kindness and solidarity with the emerging Christian communities that would stand those who did them in very good stead. To be a sheep was to have been hospitable to the church, and to be a goat was to have withheld hospitality from the followers of Jesus Christ, to have been hostile or perhaps merely indifferent to the needs of the marginalized Christians. Now, to those of us listening today, that may seem to rather conveniently let us off the hook, but there is good support for it. We pay attention to how words are used, where they are used, and what they mean in each context. And this interpretation arises from very careful attention to the word that Jesus used, adolfos, translated brothers, more inclusively, of course, to include everyone, but translated brothers in the New Testament, or little ones elsewhere in Matthew's version of the story. If we want to know what a word means, we look at how it is used. Other scholars note, however, that there is an emerging interpretation that recognizes that it is the church itself that is faced with this test. The least, in this view, are precisely who they appear to be in the story. Those who stand in need of comfort and sustenance. And still others suggest that there is room for both interpretations in this parable. If this is true, that it is instructive for how the church goes about our business. Never entitled or privileged, never demanding the best of food and water and, water and housing, but recognizing that where Christ calls us is to the world's deep hunger and need. And in such a calling, there is no room for the church to speculate as to whom might be considered sheep or goats. Our calling is to be the church regardless. Because of where these parables fall in the story, we are invited to speak plainly about what is and what is not. What is absolutely not the case is that neither the church 
nor individual Christians will ever be able to provide enough food, water, shelter, clothing, companionship to justify ourselves. I don't tend to stray to trade in always never statements, but the church should never seek to justify ourselves. Simply put, we cannot. That's not how justification works. If we wish to justify ourselves by our generous actions, if we desire that we might puff ourselves up by our good deeds, we may as well get comfortable being with the goats because we do not do good works in order to justify ourselves. We do them because Christ has already justified us. These stories stand at an important inflection point in Matthew's gospel, but they are not the whole gospel. It is only in the light of the cross that we may see clearly the ultimate meaning of these texts because it is only in the light of the cross that we can see clearly the fullness of God's love for us. So our hope in reading these texts comes back as it always does to the cross. The crown that Christ chooses is not one fashioned from gold and precious gems, but from thorns. The palace that Christ occupies is never one of luxury, but always side by side with those who stand in need of food and water and shelter, kindness and love. The throne Christ occupies is the human heart, and crowned there he reigns wherever justice is done, wherever hope is needed, wherever God's way in the world is lived. And as he reigns there, the judgment this king renders cuts straight to the heart of human frailty because the sovereign rendering judgment is also our advocate. So we do not receive a fearful judgment, but instead we receive judgment that will lead us to wholeness. That is, after all, how the Bible understands the role of the judge and judgment always to repair and to bring us to the place of wholeness. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of having lunch with an old friend of mine just ahead of her 95th birthday. As such lunches tend to go, there was a great deal of reminiscing and friendly gossip. We caught up over a great many people. As we kept talking, the topic of memories came to the forefront, and my friend began recounting a story that she had heard from her neighbor down the hall, whose ability to form and share her memories was failing. For many years, her friend's husband was a judge in 
the eastern part of North Carolina. And as his vision began to fail, she began to drive him from their home to the courthouse, which was some distance away. They would talk about the cases that were pending, and her husband would lament many of the judgments that he knew he may have to return. Because it was a bit of a drive, she made it a practice simply to sit in the back of the courtroom and work on her knitting while the court business unfolded. She recalled, however, vividly one particular case where her husband shared with her on the drive-in, I am probably going to have to take away this young man's driving license, and it means he won't be able to get to work. It will upend his life, but I suspect it has to be done. All the way to the courthouse, he fretted over what he would have to do. The case unfolded, and the judgment was clear, and so the judge rendered his verdict. The young man's license was revoked, and court was adjourned. As they were driving home, she recounted, it began to rain buckets. The judge spotted the young man walking in the rain, and knowing his address from the court forms, the judge asked his wife to pull over, and he got out and directed the young man into the front seat, and he sat in the back. Eventually, the young man said to them, you can let me out here, and the judge said, no, this, this is not your address. We will take you all the way home. As they made the drive, they talked about how this young man would share this news with his mother, about ways that he might cope without the ability to drive his car, and really at the deepest level, about what his future would look like. She recounted that by the time they arrived home, the young man bounded up the steps to his house, no longer filled with fear, but ready to face what was next. Because it is Christ who reigns over earth and heaven, we need not fear being judged a sheep or a goat. Only live in the light of the gospel. Because it is Christ who reigns over heaven and earth, it is the judge himself who will take us home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Having heard the word of God, both preached and proclaimed, we are invited now to join our voices with believers across time and throughout the world by declaring together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We come to our offering remembering that we all have an abundance of something that the world needs. Whether it be material, relational, spiritual, or emotional, we also all have needs that are unmet as well. In a world that strives to separate us and isolate us, we dare to come together right now to remember that we do not walk through this life alone and to move deeper into our solidarity with one another. We both give to and receive from one another. At this time, we are invited to gather what we have together and to be reunited as one people once more. Our tithes and offerings will now be received.
loving God, as we bring our offerings together, we see how the world around us can be reimagined, how mutual need can be met with mutual care. We grieve the ways that the world's resources are hoarded and withheld. We ask you to transform our hearts so that we are able to loosen our grip on what we see as ours and ours alone. Help us instead to find security within our relationships and our connections to one another. Bless these gifts that they may be used to do your reordering work throughout the city and world. We pray in the name of Jesus, who lives in solidarity with us. Amen. Let us come again together in prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you once told us, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. You, O oh God, do not merely observe those who are hungry lonely and rejected, but you are them. You, the God of all creation, you empty yourself of your power to be among those who the world has made vulnerable. You align yourself not with the rich and the mighty, but instead with those in our community who are devalued and forgotten, and God, you urge us to do the same. Holy God, we ask you to reorder our priorities to help us to see the humanity and the value and the divine presence within our neighbors. Where the world sees lack, help us to live with gratitude. Where the world sows division, help us to reimagine and reconnect. And where the world demands its pound of flesh, let us make room for your grace to rush in and create a new way forward. We give you thanks for the places of belonging, fulfillment, and healing that we've experienced this week. In the face of isolationism and greed, God, we choose generosity and gratitude and mutuality as our inheritance of faith. Help us to not merely remember those without food, safety, community, or relief, but empower us to build connections and systems of care that ensure that we each have enough. We ask, O oh God, for you to gather us together as disciples of your alternative way. Empower us to dismantle the patterns of oppression and privilege. Nourish us in body, mind, community, and spirit. And send us out to share the good news of our God who resides among the outcasts and the vulnerable of our world. God, transform your world on earth as it is in heaven even now as we pray the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
multiple interpretations the scholars have given us through the years, I have concluded that only one of them can be correct. It is the one that changes our hearts because it is reigning there that Christ will change everything that matters. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.